you for the strong amen that we want to uh, work on as we participate in these prayers in that way. God's law, I said, takes different forms uh, in the law, in the Bible, and um, so having been well prepared by an epistle of Paul to the Philippians, uh, we now turn to a gospel, to Matthew's gospel, in fact, back to the 21st chapter of Matthew, we turn this morning to pick up at verse 33, where we left off. We're now well into the final week of our Lord's earthly life and ministry, as recorded in Matthew's narrative. Events are now moving very quickly toward the cross, and the rest of Matthew's gospel is given to the final days of Jesus' life, the cross, the resurrection, as well from the dead. It's interesting, isn't it, that eight of the 28 chapters of Matthew are given just to this one week. Anyway, one senses here that um, none of this comes as a surprise to the Lord, not in the least. Nor is he the hapless victim of circumstances that are unfolding around him in Jerusalem. On the contrary, Jesus is masterfully directing all of these things purposefully and uh, intentionally with premeditated plan. Even his teachings now daily in the temple seem virtually designed and calculated to throw gasoline on the fire of the hatred and the indignation of the church authorities. They've already been scheming to bring about Jesus' ultimate demise. Of course, we know Jesus grips the reins now as ever. He's the one who announced to his disciples on multiple occasions, as we've read, that he must be rejected and killed. He's the one who has set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem to undergo these things. Jesus knows that it is his last week now, so naturally his eyes are turned to the cross and to judgment to come. So his proclamation of the gospel on the porches of the temple becomes all the more urgent during these charged days in Jerusalem. When those temple porches I just mentioned were packed with pilgrims to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration that week, many had ears to hear and hung on his words, and others just plain wanted to hang him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for preserving this record and uh, of this history to this day, that we may receive it as it truly is, the Word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 21, beginning at verse 33. Hear another parable, Jesus says. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, and killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants 
saw the son. They said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Jesus of Nazareth is the greatest storyteller who ever lived, isn't he? He's been called the Prince of Parables. He has delighted us, he's instructed us, sometimes chided us, often encouraged us through his earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. And those that have featured rocks and trees and sinners and saints, farmers and businessmen, Fathers and sons. He's had some dark things to say in some of them, but this one certainly must be numbered among the darkest of them and most terrifying. And while we've been, uh, had to be careful about not turning his parables into simple allegories, you know, assigning direct correlations between subjects and and uh, of the parables and real-life parties, we have to be very careful, for example, to make sure we don't equate the unjust judge in that parable with God, as if God were ever unjust. This particular parable lends itself, doesn't it? Virtually lends itself to an allegorical interpretation. To begin with, this whole vineyard theme is plainly enough and certainly would have been even more clearly understood in that day to be a biblical reference to the people of Israel in her privileged place as the people of God. The imagery was widely familiar from passages like Psalm 80. We'll sing that a little later this morning in which Asaph praised God for releasing Israel from her captivity, taking her like a vine out of Egypt and planting her in the promised land. When Israel was under attack, he called on God, the Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, that is, to have regard for his vine that his right hand had planted. 
The prophet Jeremiah likewise said, God had planted Israel like a choice vine. Ezekiel lamented that that vine had become useless while Joel... uh, Joel said it had been stripped bare by enemy nations. You remember in the prophet Isaiah's famous love song and lament that the line begins this way, Let me sing for my beloved in my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. Now Isaiah went on to describe all the hard work that the owner had to do to start his vineyard, only to be disappointed, sorely disappointed by its yield, only wild grapes that were no good for winemaking. In the end, the vineyard had to be torn down. Isaiah left no doubt about whom this vineyard represents. He wrote, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. So you see what the bald eagle is to us, or the uh, maple leaf is to our friends to the north in Canada. So the vineyard, or the vine, was to uh, Israel. Uh, One commentator points out that even in the very temple in which Jesus was teaching, there was a richly carved grapevine, 70 cubits high, sculpted around the door that led from the porch to the holy place. The vine had immense sacred meaning in the eyes of the Jews. It was their national symbol, as I mentioned, and it embodied everything that was Jewish to them. It isn't very difficult uh, to fill in the rest of the picture here, is it? The tenants who held the lease on the owner's vineyard, who were responsible to care for the people of Israel were, of course, her ministers and her elders, the very ones who were challenging Jesus' authority and were trying to destroy him. They were supposed to have cultivated the vineyard of Israel, giving them good spiritual care so that they would bear good fruit for God and produce the the sweet wine of obedience Instead, they abused their authority, as demonstrated in part by the way they had abused the messengers who had come even to them over the years on behalf of the owner of the vineyard, who is obviously God. Now, you remember from your Bibles how God's messengers, the prophets, were treated, right? Such men as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Elijah and Zechariah. God's words through his prophet Jeremiah went this way. I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me. Elijah, you remember, was hated by Queen Jezebel, had to run for his life. Jeremiah was ridiculed, rejected, locked in stocks, thrown into a pit, left for dead. Zechariah was murdered in the precincts of the temple and The greatest prophet short of Jesus himself, John the Baptist, was beheaded. When we come later to his story in the book of Acts, we will hear Stephen asking, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And for Stephen's troubles, they will kill him. 
tomb. So now, after sending all of these messengers, only to see one after another of them abused and even killed by the very tenants of the vineyard, the vineyard's owner, in other words, God would do what? (laughs) This is flabbergasting, isn't it? We're flabbergasted to hear it. He will send whom? His son. His son? Yes, his son. This is the crux of the parable. Jesus knew full well that the son of the parable was he himself, the son, sent from the father. Remember the words of the voice from heaven back in chapter 4 at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Words repeated at the Mount of Transfiguration. There could be no doubt about whom Jesus was speaking, was describing himself on a divine mission. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. Of course, there's a certain inevitability to the story, isn't there? Of course, they would not respect him. On the contrary, they would kill him. And that's exactly what they did. And as a result, Jesus, soon to be executed, asks, what will he do? What will God do? To those tenants. And the people actually supply the answer in Matthew's account of the parable. They say, He will put these wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. The vineyard of Israel, the tenants in particular, the spiritual leaders of Israel had blood on their hands with which they would soon mingle the Son's own. And for that, the vineyard of the church would be torn from them, and they themselves would be destroyed. The lessons for for the church of Jesus' day lay face up on the passage, don't they? Uh, Wide open to the people of the day that, even that day, that Jesus responded to the trap that they tried to set for him in the form of a question about his authority with a question of his own and then these parables. It is, I suppose, hypothetically possible that they could have heeded the message that day, right? Right? They could have heeded the message even that day, even at that late date, and repented of their murderous designs on the spot. In fact, one of you reminded me, and I was so glad for it after the service last week, that though Jesus' words here toward the end are very strong ones, yet they are still gracious. God is still, Jesus is still extending Uh, love, mercy, forbearance to these leaders, still calling even at this late date for the church leaders to repent. But it was, of course, too late for them. They had already murdered him in their hearts, hadn't they? 
And now it was just a matter of finishing the deed with their hands, or at least the hands of the Gentiles that they would use of Rome. They had passed that point, that biblical point that we've seen so often over the years, especially in our time in the prophets, that point of no return where the heart is finally hardened beyond repentance impervious even to the truth, even if that truth is given from the very lips of the Messiah himself. The lessons for us today remain very similar, don't they, as they were for the people then. And I think they become clear when we ask, like any good reporter does, a few basic questions. Who, why, and what? First, dear flock, ask the question, who? Who were these people? Who were these people who wanted Jesus dead like they wanted their next breath? Were they the gutter snipes? You know, were they the low lifes of Israel? Were they the scum of the earth? Were they the outcasts? No. These were the morally upright, the morally upstanding, the 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 patriotic, the, the religious people of Jesus' day. They weren't whiskey-guzzling, pierced and tattooed prostitutes. They were ministers. They were elders. They were Bible teachers. They were churchgoers. They were exemplary people. They were family men, faithful husbands, attentive fathers, affectionate wives, loving mothers, obedient children, and good citizens. They attempted to impale Jesus on the horns of a dilemma by demanding that he tell them by what authority he taught these things and performed these miracles. In other words, to say plainly whether or not he was the Messiah in order to trap Jesus, in order to force him either to affirm it and therefore put him in a position of sedition against Rome and blasphemy against the temple, or to deny it, and, and, and therefore to put himself in danger of the crowds who made him out to be a prophet. In fact, we're just calling him king a few days earlier. But they did so ostensibly anyway, for the sake of justice and righteousness. On the face of it, I say, on the face of it, on the face, the face they tried so desperately to maintain, they were after the truth. But of course, as we saw just last week, the truth was the last thing they were after. But this is the disturbing thing, isn't it? This is the troubling thing, the, the fact with which the Bible, the Gospels in particular, face us. Good moral, upstanding, church-going people killed Jesus. Jesus didn't die. He, was, he didn't just die. He was murdered. And he was murdered by people who looked a whole lot like the people I'm looking at right now. And like the person you're looking at. They look like your neighbors. They look like your nice neighbors. You know, the friendly ones who say good morning and ask how you're doing. 
Such nice people as your friendly but unbelieving neighbors and friends, such people who are dressed up in ties and skirts and filling church pews today. People who are outward only in the faith, but have no Holy Spirit dwelling in them, whom the Bible describes as hostile to God. For everyone who is not born again, Jesus said to Nicodemus, who have not been given new life by the Spirit of God, are in rebellion against God. They're in flight from God. They're diametrically opposed to God. That's why the gospel, literally, the good news is anything but good to them. The gospel Jesus was preaching at the temple, the good news that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life met with such bitter and acrid and murderous responses from the people then and is still rejected by millions of people still today, not because it is not wonderful. It most certainly is wonderful beyond words, not because it's a faulty message, but because the people are fundamentally rebellious against God. However he comes to them, even if it is with the gentlest and most generous and gracious of offers, eternal life. Through faith in the Son. That leads us to the second question. Why? Why are these people so hostile to God and particularly hostile to his saving message, the good news, the gospel? Why would they rather kill Jesus? And you know that even nice people you work with and shop with and do business with would have done the same thing that you yourself apart from the grace of God, would have been in the front row crying out on that Friday, crucify him, crucify him. I say, why would we naturally prefer to kill the messenger than to receive the message of the gospel? Well, fundamentally, it is this. Pride. Pride, the very question they asked Jesus and and is asked by multitudes of human hearts today when they hear the message of Jesus. They ask, by what authority? Why should I listen to you? Who are you? Who are you to tell me that I'm sinful? In fact, that I'm desperately wicked to the core and helpless to raise a finger on my own to do anything about it. You see, there's the rub. That's exactly the problem right there. That's where, that's where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? We are a proud people. We have been since we reared our heads against God in our father Adam in the garden. We will not be told that we cannot do anything to save ourselves. We will not hear of our desperate plight, of our sin, of our eternal debt to the wrath of God or of our need of a Savior to do for us what we cannot do at all, in part, ourselves. We think far too highly of ourselves. Which is the very definition of pride. Pride is what drove us out of the, of the kingdom 
at Eden. And a pride is what keeps us, keeps people that is out of the kingdom today, or even drives us back out of it again. Years ago, I heard knew of a church musician. She was a kind of a plain lady, as far as looks go, married with children. But one day she decided that she would lose some weight, which she did. She started to regain her figure and with it the attentions of another man. A man she found more handsome and more interesting than her own husband. More worthy, she thought, of her pride sent her into his arms and out of the kingdom, out of the church, where she remains, to my knowledge, to this day. Pride destroys us, doesn't it, because it blinds us. It blinds us to our need of Jesus. Some say that it was their greed for power, for guarding their turf that caused the church leaders in Jerusalem to seek Jesus' destruction. Well, what is that but pride manifested, right? Pride taking flesh and blood. More than anything else, they hated Jesus for telling them that, that all of their righteousness, on which they so prided themselves, was Worthless, that they could not make their own way into heaven, that they needed him, that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and that apart from him they could not even see the kingdom. They could not come to the Father. Dear flock, the lesson is beware our pride. Beware your pride. Let me tell you something. No one in this room is even closely as tempted to think so highly of you as you are. And that's precisely the danger that every one of us faces every day. Satan's pride drove him out of heaven. Yours may keep you from ever getting in. You cannot maintain your pride and receive the gospel at the same time. You cannot cling to your pride and to Christ. What did we sing just a few moments ago? Only to thy cross I cling. There's not enough room in there for the cross and for your pride. It must be one or the other. And to receive the gospel, the good news of salvation, you're going to be required to receive everything that the Bible has to say about you, about your sin, about your helplessness, apart from the Savior, to save yourself from your sin. You see, unless you let go your grip on your, your pride, your end remains very, very dark. A dark one indeed, which leads me to the third question. What becomes of those who will not turn to Jesus? What becomes of those who will not bow the knee to him, who will not relinquish their pride, their imagined self-sufficiency, surrendering to and receiving eternal life from him? Well, contrary to their futile hope, 
they can forever maintain an indifferent arm's length from Jesus, they will find Jesus, in fact, very, very close in this life. He will be the stone over which they are constantly stumbling. And even closer in the age to come when they are crushed under that stone. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is, of course, applying Psalm 118 to himself, a psalm from which the people had quoted even as Jesus entered Jerusalem the previous Sunday, singing, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Apparently, the builders of the temple in Solomon's day had, had rejected a, a stone, had set a stone aside for whatever reason, chiseled the wrong way, the wrong shape, who, who knows exactly what it was. They were, they were busy constructing the, the temple, and so they... They set that stone apart. But later, however, it turned out to everyone's surprise to be just the right size, just the right shape for the cornerstone or maybe the, the, the capstone to, to square the entire building. That event, Jesus now interprets as a prophecy about himself. He says once rejected, he would actually turn out to be the one through whom eternal life comes. To all who receive that stone, eternal life is given. To everyone who persists in rejecting that stone, not only will they stumble over him in this life, but they will find themselves pulverized as that rock falls on them in the age to come. My friends, there are only two kinds of people in the world today. All of humanity, all of the world, all of human beings come down to two groups, and that's it. Those who try very hard to keep Jesus at bay and find him a terrible foe, an implacable enemy and those who submit to him and find that there is no better, no closer, no more affectionate, no more satisfying and loving, faithful friend than he is. Hope, real hope, meaning, joy, peace, all of these things come from him and more, but only from him. And completely from and through him. He came into the world because he loved the world. And he has promised that no one who comes to him will he ever drive away. Amen.